Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, and it's my privilege to be speaking to you this morning, um, continuing our series of Encountering Jesus, uh, looking today at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8 from verse 23. Um, so with everything that's been going on, I wonder if you've found yourself asking questions of God. Lord, can't you see what's happening? Do you care about this suffering? Are you in control? Or maybe you've done an Alpha course before, or perhaps you're doing one at the moment, wrestling with the question, who is Jesus? That's one of the most important questions that we can ask. And if you've ever asked that or are asking that this morning, you're in good company because Jesus's own disciples are going to be asking that question and having to reassess everything they thought they knew. Sometimes we can ask straightforward sounding questions that have hugely significant answers. Uh, I think back to nearly 10 years ago now when in the grounds of Bodium Castle in East Sussex, as a completely nervous wreck, uh, I asked Nancy to marry me, uh, which was a straightforward enough question perhaps, uh, but the answer had a monumental impact on the rest of our lives. Uh, if you don't know us, she said yes. Um, whether to get married and to whom, where to live and work are some big questions with life-changing answers. But we're going to see in the passage today, Jesus's disciples asking an even bigger question. What kind of man is Jesus? At this point in chapter eight of Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus has been traveling around healing the sick. And as we heard from David last week, he's been calling his disciples to follow him but making sure they know the cost, making sure they know what they are signing up for and that they are in a position to trust him fully and follow wherever he leads. We also know from last time that Jesus has given orders to go over to the other side, to cross the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is also known as Lake Tiberias or sometimes just simply the lake. Um, so this follows that. So this is Matthew chapter eight uh, from verse 23. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us through it now and show us more clearly the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so this uh, passage follows after Jesus has been explaining to his disciples just what is the cost of discipleship. So he gets into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee and his disciples follow him. Uh, this would probably have been a wooden fishing boat, able to carry around 12 to 15 men and a big haul of fish. Uh, there have been remains found of a boat like this, dating from the time, and it was fairly basic and, and without a sail. Uh, 
Uh, so they set off across the lake in this boat. And Jesus appears to take the opportunity to have a nap, undoubtedly tired and weary from his time of ministry. Then suddenly there is a furious storm. The Greek word here in the original language of the New Testament is seismos, which actually means great shaking or earthquake. It's where we get our term seismology from, which is the scientific study of earthquakes and waves of energy beneath the Earth's surface. The passage later mentions winds, which is where we get the idea of the storm. Sudden windstorms are actually a fairly regular occurrence on the sea or lake of Galilee. It's the second lowest lake in the world, in a basin 600 feet below sea level, surrounded by mountains, and this causes hot air to rise rapidly, which draws in colder air uh, from the flatter lands around the mountains, and those winds cause some big waves, so big here that Matthew describes them as a seismos, a great shaking, and the waves are sweeping over the boat. So imagine the disciples' surprise when amongst all the chaos of the storm, they turn and find Jesus sleeping. So understandably, they go and wake him up saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Or more literally, we are perishing. This story is also in Mark and Luke's Gospels. And as Mark has it in his account of this event, some of the disciples were crying out, do you not care that we are perishing? You of little faith, Jesus replies, why are you so afraid? And he rebukes the winds and the waves. We see from Mark's gospel account, he says, peace, be still. And it was completely calm. Or more literally, there was a great calm. So we go from the great shaking of the seismos to the great calm at the command of Jesus. And the disciples are amazed. Again, it says in Mark, they were filled with great fear. Perhaps the only thing more scary to them than the waves sweeping over the boat was the fact that they are now sharing that boat with the man who stopped these huge forces of nature with his words. What kind of man is this, they ask. These few verses form one of my favourite parts of the whole Bible. Because up to this point in the story, in Matthew's Gospel, the disciples might have answered the question, what kind of man is this? By saying, well, this is Jesus, the long-awaited son of David, come to bring deliverance. Or, this is Jesus, a great prophet, speaking God's word with power. Or this is Jesus, a new rabbi or teacher, who can teach from the scriptures, unlike the scribes who were the Jewish teachers of the law at the time, with more depth and wisdom and authority. Or this is Jesus, a great healer like Elijah and Elisha and the prophets of old. But then this Jesus speaks into a storm and it stops completely. And the disciples have no category for this. What kind of man is this? Well, I think there are a few things we can learn about the kind of man Jesus is from this passage. Firstly, from the disciples themselves, we hear that he is Lord. Lord, save us, they say. 
Now, the Greek word there is Kyrie from Kyrios, which is not to be confused with the Australian tennis player. Kyrios means Lord, which unsurprisingly is why they translate it like that. It can also mean master or sir. It can be a general term to address a male in authority. Kyrios. However, in the Bible, this is a term the disciples use for Jesus. And after Jesus goes to the cross for our sins and rises from the dead in victory, the New Testament uses this term Kyrios to refer only to God and Jesus, often interchangeably. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, dating from around the 3rd century BC, so a few hundred years before Christ, the Hebrew name of God was represented using this Greek, Kyrios. And when you read the Old Testament in an English Bible, most translations still use the term Lord to refer to this name of God, often written in capital letters, something like, thus says the Lord in capitals. It would be fair to say that at this point, the disciples don't realise just to what extent Jesus is the Lord, but they are about to get a glimpse that shows them Jesus is the Lord, the sovereign one. This is a glimpse of the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus is in control of the created world and triumphs over the stormy sea. The implications of this wouldn't have been missed by the disciples. In the Old Testament, God alone is the one who has the divine authority to control the sea. It says in Psalm 107 from verse 23, Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, there it is, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest or a stormy wind that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage made, melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits end. Then they cried out to the Lord again in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord once more for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. Jesus is Lord, the Lord the God of the sea as well as the dry land. All power is his and we must follow him wherever he leads. Notice in the psalm, they cry out to the Lord, meaning God, in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. And we see in the passage today, the disciples calling out to Jesus to save them and him having the power to still the storm and bring them out of their distress. I wonder what the disciples might have been imagining Jesus would do. Maybe they expected him to petition God on their behalf. Like Moses, when the Israelites were trapped between the Red Sea and the advancing Egyptian army, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Then this is Exodus 14 from verse 21. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Moses intercedes for the people of Israel, standing in the gap between God and his people to ask God for him to work a miracle and deliver them from trouble. And it is God the Lord who divides the sea. So maybe the disciples thought Jesus could petition God on their behalf like Moses, or perhaps like the prophet Elijah, who after years of drought bowed himself to the earth on Mount Carmel seven times that God might send rain, or Elisha who prayed to the Lord that a child might be raised to life. But someone greater than Moses or Elijah or Elisha is here. Notice Jesus doesn't pray to God to stop the storm. He himself speaks directly to the winds and the waves, rebuking them. And there was a great calm. Throughout the Bible, the sea is often representative of chaos, unpredictable and formless disorder. The Puritan writer Matthew Henry said, they who would learn to pray must go to sea. And we read right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, the familiar words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God begins to speak and bring order to this scene of chaos, light from darkness, waters below from waters above, dry land from sea. God speaks and brings order out of chaos. And on the boat, on the stormy sea, with the waves sweeping over the boat, in what seems like a hopeless cause, Jesus shows that no obstacle is too great for his power, and no part of the created world is beyond his control. Just as God created the world, speaking order out of disorder, and later created Adam and Eve in his image to subdue the earth and have dominion, so we see here the true image of God, Jesus Christ, one with the Father and the Spirit, the one who is God and was with God in the beginning, subduing his creation and bringing order and justice and peace out of chaos. Colossians 1 from verse 15 says it this way. The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That, that doesn't mean he was the first thing created. God the Son has existed eternally, but rather that he's what's known as the preeminent one, the one who was there in the beginning with the rights and privileges of a firstborn. For in him, the passage goes on, or by means of him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Son of God is placed in the highest seat of honour, the firstborn over all creation, ruling over angels and humanity and bringing order to all of the created world. 
It goes on, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus is the Lord of creation, and he is the Lord of the church. He brings order and justice and peace out of chaos, and is the sovereign one in control, who calls us to follow him, just as he called his disciples to count the cost and follow him onto the boat that day, when he settled down and went to sleep in the midst of a storm. Why was Jesus asleep? This time in the boat is the only place in the Gospels we hear of him sleeping. Obviously, he needed sleep the same as everybody else, but why do the writers specifically mention it here? And why, when the disciples wake him, does he take the time to rebuke them whilst the storm is still raging? What we have here is a contrast between faith and fear. Jesus models perfect faith and perfect trust in God. Whilst the disciples reveal they lack confidence and don't yet understand. You of little faith, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? As I say, he says this before he calms the storm. So the disciples hear these words, why are you so afraid in the midst of the wind and the waves sweeping over the boat? What do you mean, Jesus? Can't you see the storm? There's no way out of this. We're out of control at the mercy of the elements and we're going to drown. You of little faith, says Jesus. This is a tender rebuke. He's not classing them as unbelievers or without hope, but little faith is thought to be referring more to the quality of their faith rather than a quantity. It can also be translated as a direct address to the disciples as little faiths. Little faiths, why are you so afraid? This phrase is used by Jesus throughout Matthew's Gospel. And wherever it's used, it speaks to a failure to see beyond the surface appearance of things. The disciples have been walking with Jesus. They've seen him teach and heal, and they believed he was the one to usher in God's kingdom. But now the waves are sweeping over the boat, and they're distracted. And they have to learn this lesson over and over again. And let's be honest, so do we. But meanwhile, Jesus is asleep in the midst of the storm. He fully trusts in God. He knows the calling God has over his life. He knows, to use the language of John's gospel, that his hour had not yet come. He knows that God's work to bring salvation through him was not going to end in a storm at sea. And so, with no guilt and no fear to disturb him, he slept peacefully. What makes us so afraid? What distracts us from the prize of the upward call of God in Christ? Many of us face truly scary things. I'm not detracting from that. The storm was truly scary for the disciples. Some of you know, back in May last year, um, I was hit by a car whilst I was out on my bike. 
And as a result of that, I'm still facing multiple surgeries and some ongoing health conditions that could have a real impact. And it scares me. When you think life is ticking along nicely in one direction, and then out of nowhere, there's a seismos, a great shaking in life. And I know many of you are facing things far worse than that. But the choice for all of us remains. Will we trust Jesus and follow him wherever he leads? Or will we get distracted by the fear and the waves? And I've struggled with this because there's a part of me that likes the easy road and would love to stand here and deliver a platitude like, follow Jesus and he will calm the storms of your life. But while that might make us feel a bit better in the short term, Anyone who's been a Christian for more than five minutes will tell you it doesn't exactly match their experience. It certainly doesn't match mine. And it doesn't help us to grow in faith and deepen our relationship with God. More than that, I just don't believe that's what this passage here is trying to teach us. Whilst it is true that as we draw close to God, his peace will guard our hearts and minds, as it says in Philippians, I think the meaning of this text is rather to point us to the incredible divine power of Jesus Christ. I'm fond of a three-point sermon, and I'm aware that this isn't one. But I mentioned earlier that this is one of my favourite parts of the Bible. And it's because it makes me catch my breath in awe and wonder. It leads me to worship our creator God, and it drives me to my knees in prayer. And my one hope is that you too will catch a glimpse this morning. Knowing that if we follow him, if we choose faith over fear, if we trust and obey, if when we fall, we get back up, we are following the one whose authority extends from the highest heaven to the depths of the earth. We are following the one who can open our eyes to new worlds of possibility we had never imagined. And we are following him whom even the winds and the waves obey. So let's pray. Father, help us in the midst of our fear and our distraction to choose faith, to trust in you and follow you wherever you would lead us for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.